or Ron read to us a minute ago, the reason I chose 1 Samuel as a text for uh, some messages here in the springtime is primarily because of today's uh, Mother's Day, and I think this makes a uh, good text for Mother's Day. Uh, I wear a flower once a year, <laughs> and that's a, a white one to remember my mother who passed away January 1, 2001. Uh, she wanted to see the new millennium, and she did <laughs> by one day. And so that's in uh, memory of her, of course. I like Mother's Day. I think it's a good tradition. I'm glad that we have it. Uh, whether or not you like it, the truth is you had a mother. And uh, whether or not you are one or not, you had a mother. Uh, there are many people in today's world, of course, trying to prevent motherhood. But uh, there, there are some who apologize for it, uh, thinking, well, maybe, you know, it's being a little prideful if you say you're a mother and someone is not. But let me remind you, it's not about you, it's about your mother. And we all have a mother. And uh, remember that uh, God has special gifts for all of us, even singleness and various different ways in life. And of course, motherhood is a very special way of life, and we're, we're glad for it. We never degrade the things that God has done. Uh, we may not like the government we live under uh, or the country uh, you happen to live in, but God established governments. We uh, may not always uh, like the Lord's house and everything that happens in it, but it's God's house. Same with the family, same with uh, parenthood and childhood. Uh, we just uh, are given these things, and uh, God has placed us where he wants us, and so we praise him and serve him in that way. Now, in 1 Samuel, of course, is the story of the little boy named Samuel, who uh, is yet to be born in our story here. But as you remember, if you were with us last week, we started in verse 1, and we found this man named Elkanah, uh, who is then Hannah's husband and will be uh, Samuel's father. Elkanah had two wives, and uh, most of us have admitted we do fine with just one. It's all we can handle, and we don't need two. But in those days, it was permitted, though not the best and not God's original plan. Uh, our supposition was that, that uh, Elkanah, is, we're said here, is said to have loved Hannah, but Hannah had no children. So it was common in those days then to marry again and to bring up children by a wife who could have children. And uh, Penina is said to have sons and daughters, so we figured uh, maybe four uh, minimum and maybe more children. So if that's true, that he married Hannah first and she had no children, then he married Penina, she has four. It's been a while <laughs> that uh, Hannah has not had children and has grieved over that. And at the same time, it's been a while that Penina has chided her uh, in a wrong way, of course, uh, in the way that she has done. You know, God's choices of character studies in the Bible are interesting, and we should always take notice of them carefully. Uh, and the, some of the most interesting character studies we have in the Bible are the women in the Bible, especially mothers and others. So we begin with Eve, of course, and uh, Eve uh, has a unique place in uh, our history and everyone's history. We have, remember, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, the, the wives of the patriarchs and therefore mothers of the patriarchs. Miriam, Deborah, Rahab, Ruth, 
women like this who come along uh, in the Old Testament and Hannah here and uh, teach us lessons that only they could teach us. There's Mary and Elizabeth, you know, the mother of Jesus and of John the Baptist. Uh, Phoebe, the elect lady, uh, women like this who are just mentioned maybe once in the, in the Scripture, and yet uh, God puts them there for reasons so that we can learn from them. And so I hope that we do even this morning. What about your mother? I, I, uh, uh, there was a post on Facebook from a good friend of ours out in Colorado who uh, she said, uh, what is something you remember that your mother always said? <laughs> and uh, uh, there were a long list of replies, you know, to her, to her post because there will always be things like that. My daughter, Rebecca, said, I remember my grandmother said, and, and meaning my mother, always read and write. <laughs> she was an English teacher. So, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people said, I think the most common one was, because I told you so. <laughs> that may be the most common uh, reply of mothers. Your mother, I'm sure, had, had um, some unique saying or something that, that meant a lot to you, and you will remember those things all your life, and I hope teach them to your uh, kids and, and grandkids. I was thinking about that and thinking, you know, um, there's a, there's a thing that goes on on the cooking shows. I'm not a big fan of the cooking shows on TV, but I like that one about the diners drive in and dives, you know, because it makes me hungry. I mean, I watch that thing and look at the hamburgers they're uh, fixing or whatever, and I'm ready to eat dinner, you know, after I see that. But, uh, you know, one of the common things they do in that show is that somebody's going to... Uh, mix something up. So they have this bowl here and they start putting things in it. You know, they got to measure it in these little cups. And then a little of this, and 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 you're looking at it, you know, and they're watching it all go in there. And it might be 12 or 14 different things, this and this and this and this and this and this. And then they stir it all around and somehow it comes out good, you know. Well, you know, that's kind of the way um, motherhood is. <laughs> Uh, your mother had a lot of mixtures in her before she ever got to you. And now all of those mixtures are mixed into you. And then they will be mixed into your kids and into your grandkids and on and on it goes. And that first mixture was with Eve and then all the way down uh, to, uh, to us today. As a matter of fact, I, I think my mother uh, was uh, from Springfield. She was uh, an Ozark girl. Uh, born without her shoes on. So, uh, Grandpa ran a grocery store and she drove the delivery truck when she was 12 years old. You know, was the way it was back in those days. But Anne's mother uh, was a Russian immigrant. Uh, imagine, you know, a hillbilly and a Russian blended together. And, and uh, guess what comes out of that? Our four kids, that's what. And so they had this unique mixture of things that other kids don't have you have the same thing and your children have the same thing and then they've married they've all married now and so our grandkids have not only that mixture but a mixture of a bunch of other things but they're blended uh, into what God wanted for you and how God made you and we look at those kinds of things and we say thank you Lord for this and that we may not always like it but God knows what he's doing has a purpose for it I have in your bulletin some thoughts just from these three verses, 9, 10, and 11 in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and a couple general thoughts. One is we're reminded again of Hannah's situation 
her family situation and what was going on in her life, but then most importantly, she vows this vow before God uh, that turns out to be the birth of Samuel, as we'll see his birth in the, in the weeks ahead as we go through those, the rest of this chapter. So the first thing is, again, her, her family responsibility, she had that, and you, let me remind you that they're there for the feast day, and uh, uh, we have already learned about Elkanah, her husband, Penina, the other wife, and uh, they're there for these feast days, and uh, they're supposed to offer their sacrifice, then they're supposed to eat of what's left over from that sacrifice, and in the meantime, uh, Hannah uh, is very depressed, and she cries. As a matter of fact, at the end of verse 7, it says she just didn't even want to eat. And in verse 8, Elkanah tries to cheer her up. I made light of it a little bit, saying uh, at the end of verse 8, you know, come on, aren't I better to thee than ten sons? And I challenged you to try that and see if you get away with it. Because this week, one time, I forget what it was, I, said, I tried to say that to my wife, and it didn't work either. So, uh, But in a way, Alcana, there may have been even a little scolding there or a little encouraging there to come on. Uh, you know, we're here before the Lord. Let's, let's do what we're supposed to do. Anyway, here's a, a family responsibility. And uh, it, we're told in our text in verse 8, so Hannah rose up after they had eaten. Whereas in the end of verse 7, she didn't want to eat. I assume then that she did. And maybe partly because of the encouragement of her husband uh, or partly because she knew she needed to do this. She was there to offer her sacrifice before God. And part of the responsibility was that the priest took part of the meat of that sacrifice, gave part of the meat back to you, and you were to eat that, just as like in the Passover, you were to eat that lamb and all of it before morning. So she fulfilled her responsibilities, I think. And it says uh, she, after they had, uh, had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk, I think of that word drunk, and obviously it does not mean she was drunk uh, in the sense of uh, intoxicated. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's kind of like the word used in Second John when Jesus turned the water into wine, and some people misuse it there where it says, Every man at the beginning of the feast does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. Some people say, see, they were drunk. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I believe it was grape juice he turned it into anyway. But, but as a matter of fact, look at uh, uh, here in our passage, look over at verse 15. Hannah answered and said, now this is when Eli looks at her and thinks she, she's speaking to herself. Why is she doing that? I am a woman of sorrow for spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink. So uh, when you see the word drunk, in verse 9, take it as a past tense as it is. Uh, they're done. They drank what they needed to. They ate what they needed to, all right? So uh, we have that. You know, here she is then as a mother, sorrowful, uh, kind of dejected, but she's there with her family, and she is going to do the important thing that she's supposed to do. Matt, old Matthew Henry said in this passage, he said, it is as great a price of self-denial to control our passions as it is to control our appetites. Sometimes to control our passions is harder than to control our appetite. 
but here her passion was controlled. And sometimes a mother, a parent, has to do that at a particular time so that uh, it's the right thing to do before children and before the rest of the family. You know, we don't always feel like fulfilling family responsibilities, but we have to. And there's no one in the household that feels that more than the mother of a young child. And all of you who have been mothers remember those days, whether it's getting up in the middle of the night, whether it's changing uh, diapers that you don't want to change, it's cooking three meals a day, it's doing all of those things that are demanded of you. Sometimes you don't feel like doing it like Hannah didn't feel like doing it here, but she did the right thing. She did it, and that's the way it should be done. I remember when I, when I was a boy of eight years old, I broke my leg playing Tarzan. I was swinging out of a tree and fell into a barnyard, broke my, actually broke my hip and almost broke my back. And I was eight years old. It was in the summertime, and I was 13 weeks in traction, 13 more weeks in a body cast, and then I had to learn to write and I, or to walk again. And then that day, we were living in Ohio. My dad was finishing his Ph.D. at the University of Missouri and already had made plans to come back to there. Mom and the four kids were all going to Springfield to stay with Grandma and Grandpa. We had already rented out our house and had to leave, and I go break my leg, and I'm in the hospital all this time. So Dad goes off to Columbia. My brothers and sisters all go to Springfield to be with Grandma and Grandpa, and Mom took me. She's a teacher anyway and found an empty farmhouse that somebody had owned. It was, and we stayed in that for at least a couple months. I know I broke my leg in the summer and went back to school about December 1st in Springfield. And I remember her taking all that time off away from dad, away from the, my siblings, and uh, helping me walk again. I can still remember being a little boy crawling up the stairs. My exercise when I finally got out of that cast was just to learn to crawl again at eight years old, crawling up those stairs. And she did all of that uh, without complaining. And then we went off to Springfield and I started school December 1st uh, at a a school I didn't know with kids I didn't know and I could hardly walk anyway. It was a pretty tough year. But moms do those kinds of things. Mom, uh, pay, they pay the price that they have to pay. So here's family responsibility that uh, Hannah is going to say, I'm going to do these things. I'm the mom here. I'm supposed to do them. Now, there's temple worship also that she's committed to as a Jewish woman in a Jewish family, as a matter of fact, in a Levite family. And uh, we find, first of all, uh, then... Uh, in uh, verse 9, it says, Now Eli the priest sat upon a seat by the post of the temple of the Lord. Look over at chapter 4. Go to chapter 4 and go to verse 18. Later, when the Philistines conquer them and take the, the uh, uh, ark away, It says in verse 17, the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines, and there hath been also a great slaughter among the people, and thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. Verse 18, it came to pass when he had made mention of the ark of God, this is Eli, that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck break and he died for he was an old man and heavy and he had judged Israel 
40 years, and he died in his 90s. So he, he judged Israel these last 40 years. So here he is before that, sitting as this big heavy man, too old to get up and too immo uh, immobile, and he's sitting over there where he can watch everything, but he's basically uh, kind of uh, unable to take part in anything. Not a real good situation for the temple. Not a real good situation for those who work in the temple. And not only that, but verse 3 told us that, that his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord doing the work. But look at uh, chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, Now the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, and they knew not the Lord. We're going to find out in this story that they had all kinds of crooked practices going on. So my point in saying this is that here, the, the very Lord's house, where they went three times a year, or at least one of those three major feasts, and were supposed to worship, uh, they had all kinds of excuses that they wanted to use them for not going. Look what's going on there. Look, uh, look what's happening there. I'm not going to go. No, it's the Lord's house. So they went. I recall that it was in John chapter 2, if you remember, that Jesus drives the money changers out of the temple and says, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. It's still my father's house. No matter how crooked it has become, no matter what has happened to it, it's still my father's house. And so we need to understand the house of God today is the local church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's in Ill, uh, uh, Ill repair. It is still God's house. This is our responsibility where we should be. Well, I don't know whether Elkanah was better than ten sons to uh, Hannah, but God was. God's better than ten sons. The relationship with the Lord is always better than whatever your pain is or whatever your hurt is. When you go over to chapter 3 and you begin reading how uh, uh, Samuel will be born and will be serving God in his house, if she could have looked ahead and seen little Samuel with his little ephod on and serving God, running, doing the errands in the temple, she would have been glad and happy. But she couldn't see it as we can't always see the future of things that are going on. The church is God's house. That is, we know that the, we're talking about the people, not necessarily the building. We're talking about God's people who possess the Holy Spirit, who come together and worship in a corporate way. Uh, let's honor it. Let's do what we should do. And then thirdly, we have a prayer habit of, uh, of Hannah's, and we see that uh, in beginning in verse 10. She was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Remember, these were the feast days. They were supposed to come at three major feasts. They probably came at least at one of these. And when they came, they came with their offering. And this was a peace offering, free will offering, and any other offering that needed to be offered. And when you offered your, your sacrifice and you did your part, the priest did his part, the animal was... Uh, uh, killed and separated and burned and all of that went on, then that was your time to pray. We don't kind of connect with that because you and I, when we pray, we just stop, bow our heads and talk to God. They went to the temple. This was God's way to go to the priest who represents you to God. 
And so they took their uh, uh, offering and they went there. You know, when, when Daniel was unable to go to the temple with a sacrifice, what he did was he went to his room, opened his window toward the temple when the sacrifice would have been taking place morning, noon, and night, and he prayed at that time toward the temple because he was recognizing this is God's pattern. You remember a publican went to the temple one day and uh, he went aside where no one could see him. He smote himself on the breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, he had, he had made his sacrifice. Now he was before the priest. Now he's going to do what he's supposed to do as a good Jewish man and pray to God to be propitious. God, be merciful to me. Be propitious. May your anger be taken away because I have done what you've commanded me to do. Aren't you glad that when we come to God these days, we come with Jesus Christ as a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And we come in Jesus' name as he is now our high priest. We can stop and go to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession for us. A great blessing uh, we have in doing that. But I tell you, strong churches and strong families begin with worshiping and praying mothers. And if Samuel is going to be the kind of child that she hopes he will be if God gives her a child, which we know, of course, that, that he will, then she is already worshiping the way she's supposed to worship, praying, honoring God the way she's supposed to honor him, regardless of what anybody else around there is doing. She is doing the right thing that she's supposed to do. We see it in, in Mary and Elizabeth, the mothers, again, of Jesus and, and of John the Baptist. Or uh, remember these words uh, when Paul writes to young Timothy, and in 2 Timothy 1, he says, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Why? Because they prayed. And then in chapter 3, he says that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. So uh, they taught him. So all of that begins with a praying mother who prays and worships the way she should before God. I hope uh, children have been born in your family or extended family. This last year, we've had two more added to our family, uh, a little girl, Evangeline Mateel, and a little uh, boy, Wyatt Earp Mason. Well, Wyatt Mason. I thought he'd be Wyatt Earp, but it's Wyatt Mason uh, Deese. He's a WMD anyway. Uh, but you know what? I can say this honestly. A day does not go by that as the sun rises, I don't mention those two names before God. And I know their grandmother does too. And all the other kids I have. And you should be doing the same thing for your children and for your grandchildren. Because if you're not praying for them, who is? Uh, this is what's going to help the next generation. This is what is going to allow them to walk. Here, here's, a, here's a woman praying for something that wouldn't even happen if she hadn't prayed, perhaps. But she is going to pray, and don't you think as, uh, for the rest of his life and the rest of her life anyway, that she prayed for that uh, boy and then that young man and then that man of God all of her life? This is our responsibility. So she had this prayer habit, a family responsibility, a temple worship, a prayer habit. But 
the main thing that happens here is her vow. And we see that in verse 11 in the longer verse here. So let's think about this for a minute. It says, and she vowed a vow. Now, vows were taken in the Old Testament for various reasons. Uh, it actually goes back to Numbers 30. And let me read a couple of verses to you from the book of Numbers where Moses is giving the law. And Numbers 31 and 2, Moses spake unto the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord hath commanded. If a man vow a vow, exactly the same expression that we have here, unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceedeth out of his mouth. Now, it doesn't say he must makes a certain vow. But it does say, if you make it, you must keep it. You don't have to always do this, but when you do it, you've given your word, and then you will do it. And then, when you, then, then it begins to give different situations of different people who make vows. So in verse 6 of Numbers 30, it speaks of a wife, a woman. And it says, if she had at all a husband... Does she have at all a husband? <laughs> well, she has one. I don't know if he's really... No, she had a husband. When she vowed or uttered aught out of her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, and her husband heard it and held his peace at her in the day that she heard it, then her vows shall stand, and her bonds wherewith she bound her soul shall stand. In other words... A husband has to okay the wife's vow, and he can object and disqualify it if he wants, according to the law of Moses. But if he says okay at that time and lets her vow the vow, then it's good. She has to follow through with it also. So in this story that we have here, of course, she decides to vow a vow. I am assuming that being good Israelites, Levites themselves, being here at the temple in the, at a feast day, that uh, she had checked with Elkanah about making this vow. And he said, if you want to, you make it. And so she did. And now that she's made it, she must do it. And she's doing it with, even with his approval. You know, the law also said that every Israelite... Uh, child that is born is to be offered back to God, and God said, the firstborn is always mine. The firstborn of every family will be mine. And so when the firstborn son was born, then you had to take him and offer him to God. Leviticus 27.6 says this, if it be from a month old unto five years old, uh, then thy estimation shall be of the male five shekels of silver, and for the female three shekels of silver. Now, what's going on there is that you went to the, to the temple with your firstborn male child or female child, and you said, I'm giving my firstborn child to you, but you can buy that child back. And you give five shekels or three, and the priest takes the money, you take your child. You've offered him to God, you've exchanged him back. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. But uh, she knows that that has to be done. 
She knows that there's coming a time when the, if this boy is born, when he's, she's going to have to offer him to God, what are they going to do with that money that's offered for this firstborn child? We'll see more about that in just a minute. So here's the vow. And uh, as she makes this vow, I have these four thoughts. Number one, she makes it in the right direction. Because uh, we're told here, she vowed a vow and said, vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. Now you got to stop at that point and think about something. And that is, that is a very unusual thing to say. As a matter of fact, I'm reading old John Gill from the 1600s, who was a Talmudic scholar of the Talmud, and he's quoting the Talmud. And the Talmud says, from the day God created the world, no man called him the Lord of hosts till Hannah came and called him so. Isn't that an interesting thing? No one has ever addressed God as the Lord of hosts until this Jewish woman in the sorrow of her heart cries out and says, Oh, Lord of hosts. Now, hosts means the angel, the angelic host. He is the Lord of hosts. And how many angels are there? 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. He's the Lord of hosts. You don't mess with him, in other words, is kind of the idea. And she addresses him as the Lord of hosts and begins that uh, name uh, for him in the scriptures. I think that's really an amazing thing. Well, the point, my point is that she's praying in the right direction, and that is she's praying to God. Psalm 127, uh, David will say, Lo, children are a heritage, what? Of the Lord. And the womb is, the fruit of the womb is his reward. Children come from God, and they're, and they're God's reward to us. And that's the way all of our requests ought to be, whether you pray for a child or whether you pray for the child after the child is born or whatever we pray in this life. Let me remind you of 1 Timothy 2. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks, in other words, any kind of prayer that you can pray, be made for all men. That's verse 1. Verse 3 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. You know why you pray and you know why you bring all of these requests before God? Because it's in His sight, the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts. And then verse 5 says, For there is one mediator, there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And when you pray, you're praying through Jesus' name, the one mediator, the Lord of hosts. And so all of our prayers that we pray have to be prayed in this way. And the point is, folks, the, the door to the throne room of God is open. Are you going to go in there? Are you going to go in boldly as, as Hannah did and pray before the Lord for your children, for your parents, for your friends, for anything that you pray? Yes, we can. Pray in the right direction. Now, secondly, pray with the right attitude. And she prayed uh, with this right attitude. And, and I like this. Uh, very much. Read it again in verse 11. Notice uh, after the Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid. You know, uh, always it was a biblical thing 
Uh, I, I was reading last night David before King Saul. Saul. Saul's not a good king, and he's trying to kill David. And every time David speaks to Saul, he says, uh, your servant to my Lord, always referring to him that way, just the way uh, a humble heart would do it. So uh, look on the affliction of thine handmaid. And remember me, forget not thine handmaid, and, but, but will give unto thine handmaid. That's her constant plea before the Lord. Remember me, don't forget me. Prayer, folks, is humility. Prayer is reverence. Prayer is emptiness of ourselves. We so often come before God with our face stark and looking up and making demands of God and expressing our own anger or whatever before a holy God. Let me remind you of something uh, in the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees God's throne and sees the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah 6.1. And then in Isaiah 6.2 it says this, above it, above God's throne, stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. Now, now listen to this. With two, he covered his face before the throne of God. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he did fly. That is humility, covering your eyes and looking down rather than trying to be king yourself. Modesty covered their feet. And then service with the last two that he flew. And I was thinking about that and thinking, you know, when we sing that song, holy, 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 inside that song we say, cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shall be. And when we sing immortal, invisible, Within that song we sing, Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. But sometimes we come to God as if we can make demands and he owes us and, and uh, we're the uh, king and he's our servant. And we're going to tell him what we need here. No, that's not what the angels, the seraphim and cherubim do before his throne. Not what Hannah did. And this is why, partly why God answers her prayer, the right attitude that she has in prayer. And then thirdly, there's the right desire. Give me a man, she says. Uh, well, if you will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, an old expression, a man-child. Literally, it means, it's translated, a seed of a man. A seed of a man. And, of course, part of the reason she's saying this is she knows that she's going to offer him back to God for service in the temple, and you can't offer a girl in the service of the temple because they don't serve this way in the temple. The men do. And so if she's going to be able to give him back to the temple, it's got to be a man-child. And, and we're talking Jewish custom and, and Mosaic law here, so we know that. So she's ready to, she has this desire that if she has a child, if she has someone of the seed of, of her and her husband who will carry on seed to others, then uh, I will give him in service to God. And I have to think, folks, do, are we willing to give our children 
in service to God. Mothers, are we willing to do that? Are we willing to do it when they're young and when it can make a difference in their lives? Remember Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I'll give him as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. It's my reasonable service. I'll do it because I want to, and I should. She has the right desire here to do that. Let's give our kids to God, at least offer our children to him for service. My favorite missionary hymn is O Zion Haste, and part of the reason is I love that last verse that says, Give of thy sons to bear the message glorious. Give of thy wealth to speed them on their way. Pour out thy soul for them in prayer victorious, and all thou spendest Jesus will repay. Let's give of our sons, and let's send them on their way, and let's ask God to take our children and do that. Fourthly, there's a right commitment here. So she says, if you will do that, then, in verse 11, I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. If you do that, then I will do this. All the days of his life. Now that's unique because they are Levites. And any Levite boy, male, that is born has to serve in the temple from the time he's 20 years old till the time he's 50 years old. That's what Levite men did. Not a bad work schedule, huh? You're going to work from 20 to 50, have a great retirement, and uh, give everybody else advice the rest of your life. That's, that's what Levites did. So uh, it, it seems pretty good. No, she says, no, I'll do it all of his life. Not just the normal, not just the medium. I will give him to you all the days of his life. And of course, partly, part of what that means is that uh, he, she's going to offer as a, as a uh, uh, Nazarite, we'll see in just a minute. But before we do, let me, let me go back to that idea of bringing your firstborn child to the temple with the payment to buy him back. Merle Unger in his Dictionary of the Bible had this great statement in a section about firstborn. He's talking about then when you, bring, when you brought your firstborn to the temple, there would be a meal with the priest, and you would do this. He says, the priest, having invoked the divine blessing upon the meal and offered some uh, introductory prayers, looked at the child and the redemption money placed before him. In other words, here's my firstborn child, here's the five shekels. And asks the father to choose between the money and the child. Upon the father's reply that he would rather pay the redemption money, the priest takes it, swings it over the child's head in a token of his vicarious authority saying, this is for the firstborn, this is in lieu of it, this redeems it. Leave the money, take the child, go home. Every family did that with their firstborn. But the point here is, Here's the child, here's the five shekels, and the priest says, uh, which will it be, the child or the five shekels? And Elkanah and Hannah had made an agreement, they will leave the child and take the five shekels back. Now that's got to be a hard thing to do. 
That's got to be a hard thing to follow through with. When you, It's one thing to pray like that. It's one thing to pray and say, this is what we'll do, Lord. If you give me this boy, this is what I'll do. How many of us have said, oh, Lord, you know, maybe a baby dedication or some service like that, and we've said, oh, Lord, this is what we'll do with our children. But when it came right down to it, we didn't give that child to the Lord. We didn't instruct as we should have or disciplined as we should have or whatever. And that takes its toll. But here they came right down to that moment, and she said, when that time comes, I will do it. And we'll see that later in the passage. Then quickly, let me say, she also then said, no razor shall come upon his head. And this, of course, means that I will, I will offer him as a Nazarite, not only just as a Levite, but as a Nazarite. Now, the, the Nazarite vows are in number chapter 6, and usually Nazarite vows were, were for a time period. You, you did this for a period of usually a month or maybe two months. And, and during that month, you didn't shave your head, you didn't drink any, you didn't even eat grapes, and all, it didn't come by a, a dead body. You would do it for a time period, and then you would go to the temple, offer a sacrifice, and you were released from your vow. You, as a matter of fact, they shaved your head and offered your hair as a sacrifice, and, and it was done. There are only three people we know of in all of the Scripture who were lifetime Nazarites. The first one was Samson. The second one was Samuel. And the third one, John the Baptist. Now, what's unique about this story is Samson had just died. In the timeline of the Old Testament, Hannah may have been alive when Samson was alive. At least it's close. Uh, and, and so Eli follows uh, 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 Samson, but in his old age. At least she knew this, that it's a possibility for someone to take a, a lifetime vow. As a matter of fact, I want you to quickly uh, turn back to, to uh, Judges, just the book before Ruth. Judges 13, here's the first time this ever, this ever took place. Judges 13, verse 3, here, here are the parents of uh, Samson. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. This is what Hannah wants, you see. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, drink not wine nor strong drink or eat any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel the hand of the Philistines. So she knows this has happened before, and, and very recently. Now she knows that the three things that are required of a Nazarite is not to cut the hair, Secondly, not to ever drink any wine or liquor or strong drinks. As a matter of fact, they couldn't eat grapes because they begin to die as soon as you eat them. So you can't even do that. And you never can touch a dead body, not even bury your own parents. As a Nazarite, you can't do those things. So that's what she's indicating, of course, here when she says this. And uh, even though usually it, it could be just for a short time, she is doing it for committing him for the rest of his life, just like Samson. Only she didn't realize that he would be much greater than Samson. All Samson did basically was for his own profit and uh, kind of do what he wanted to do and show some strong feats of strength and finally die a martyr's death by killing a bunch of Philistines when he died. This man will be the greatest statesman of, the, of Old Testament Israel. 
this man will change Israel. She doesn't know that yet, but God does. And God wants to give her this. And so, may I say, parenting is a lifelong commitment. You know, when, when children are little, when you have birth and childhood, it's a physical work. When you have that time of they're getting to be adults, and then especially when you let them go, you have emotional work. And then in your later years as grandparents and in your older age, you have devotional work. <laughs> Let me say that again. You have physical work, then you go through a time of emotional work, and then you come to a time of devotional work as a grandma or grandpa. And I'm reminded that had Hannah not been in grief herself, Samuel may never have been born. If she had not been ridiculed by uh, her enemy, she would not have felt the need to pray this prayer, perhaps. Someone said if she were not a godly woman and just decided that, you know, it's not worth serving God, look, he's not given me anything, I'm going to go off and live the way I want to live, she would have never vowed a vow and never done this, and Samuel would never have been born. But here's a godly woman who followed God in the day that she knew what to do, and God said, this is what I want to do with you. Well, everyone here has a mother, and uh, she never stopped loving you. It may seem like it, but she didn't. And you do even better. You do like Hannah and Elkanah. Pay the price. That is humility, modesty, service, physical work, emotional work, devotional work. Do what is required as mom and dad before God. Stand now with me, if you will, as we stand and and go to the Lord uh, in prayer and sing a song. Uh, let's ask God to speak to our hearts in the way that he desires. Let's, let's stand and let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words about Hannah and her desire before you. Uh, may we learn much from this godly woman, and we thank you for her, and we thank you for putting the record of it in your word. Now, Father, uh, there are many ways that, that our hearts... Uh, should be softened toward you, even from this passage. And we pray that you would do that today. And as we sing and remind ourselves of these things, I pray, Father, that you would speak to every heart, young and old. Uh, we all have mothers, and, and we must honor them and be thankful for them. And many have children and grandchildren and sometimes great-grandchildren. Oh, may we be faithful to them before you. And so, Father, speak to our hearts in the way that we need. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John's going to come.